Hey everyone, welcome to the Grabs Podcast, where we bring the stories of real-life rescues to you firsthand from those involved. I'm your host today, Grant, and with me today, I'm lucky enough to have John Spira. You might know the name from Fit to Fight Fire, um, but we're going to talk today about a grab that was made in April of 2021, and uh, yeah, I'll introduce John now. Hey John, how you doing? Hey Grant, what's up buddy? Happy to be here. Cool. Uh, tell us a little bit about your department. Yeah, so um, I'm pretty new to my my department, it's uh, kind of a backstory real quick. I started in Florida where you're at. Uh, I started with Boca Raton Fire Rescue, worked there for five years. My wife and I, when we first met, um, we talked about wanting to live in Colorado. And over the years, we took that dream, made it a reality, and I, I lateraled to Colorado, and I worked for Aurora Fire Rescue for 13 years. So uh, 18 years into my career, and maybe a little bit before I got to that 18th year, um, I just felt like my organization wasn't meeting my standards. And I think as firefighters, oftentimes we get so stuck in the thought that our department's holding us to standards, which they should. But we also have the right to hold our organization to standards and certain things that are a priority for us. And for me, that changed. And I Saw a department five years, um, just kind of looking five years from when I, I transferred over five years back that really wellness was a priority. Training was a priority. Culture was top notch. Um, all that stuff was in line. So I made the decision to move over to that organization. So at uh, 45 years old, I was back in a fire academy and I was with now South Metro Fire Rescue. Uh, South Metro Fire Rescue, in my opinion, has the number one wellness program in the world for fire for fire departments it's incredible and it was a big draw for me uh culture wise truly value their people want to see every firefighter become the best version of themselves and they put you in a position whether you want to ride the back seat like i do for the rest of your career or you want to be a chief um, they're going to support that and give you the resources you need to be successful uh, we're 30 stations so we have 30 stations we cover a large geographical area. So for me, being a newer firefighter, I um, roved a lot. So I could easily be um, on the east side of our district and it could take me 40 minutes to get to the west side of our district and uh, get to another firehouse. So we cover a large area. Uh, we have about 700 firefighters. We have six trucks, uh, 24 engines, and 19 medic units. Our trucks are manned uh, four person, uh, probably a good portion of our engines are four. The ones that aren't are moving to four-person staffing. And then our medic units are two. Uh, majority of them are two paramedics. And then we have our air packs and irons and things like that in our medic units as well. Uh, we're big on training. Uh, the department does a good job of consistently doing hands-on training. Uh, if you are somebody that's looking to get into the officer role, um, the amount of support they give you when it comes to going out to the drill ground, having five rigs meet you out there and just running you through the paces of running fires. And then everybody else who's out there to support you, stretching hose lines, uh, doing searches. So the type of training we do to put people in a position to succeed uh, is awesome for that person, but it's really good for those that are supporting them too, because we're getting those hands-on reps as well. So that's kind of a snapshot um, of who we are. We're an ALS department, uh, full service specialty teams. We have them all, um, TRT, dive rescue, hazmat, wildland. Uh, we have a pretty robust uh, tactical EMS as well. So uh, anything you want to participate in, 
um, it's there. And when, then we cover a, a large area like I talked about. So you could be in a real rural area or you could be in more of an urban environment. It just depends on what you want out of your career. Dang, that's awesome. We could spend a whole podcast on their department and probably on how they uh, how they did set up their academies and 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 support their dudes. Uh, tell me about uh, your search culture in your department. Yeah, so it was pretty cool because I had taken several classes over my career, and then I moved into um, a fire academy, a sixteen week fire academy is what we were supposed to go through. It got shortened because of because of COVID. But um, what they were teaching in the academy is what I had learned at conferences, which was really cool. Um, they were talking about the opportunity to do a split search. They were talking about targeted search. They were getting us in the tripod position. Um, all those things were happening in the academy, which was great uh, to experience. And then when I got out online, um, I liked the idea that the individual officer really took into consideration the experience of his crew um, their training level and made decisions on search, how they were going to do a primary search based on the crew that day. And we actually had those conversations, which was nice. That was like a, a kitchen uh, conversation in the morning. So I think the culture, uh, the search culture is strong, but it also is dependent on the crew um, that that officer has that day and how comfortable he is with uh, using a specific type of search. That's cool. It sounds like top to bottom. It, it the search is supported. It uh, really is. Can you tell us what you, you guys are going on a residential structure fire? What do you guys get for uh, a box alarm assignment? Right. So for a working fire, um, we're going to get a ladder. We'll get four engines, two medics, two BCs, a safety officer. And a med one, med one is basically an EMS supervisor. So that's what we're going to get on a residential uh, working fire. Then how do you guys divvy up that workload? Is it SOG driven? Is it IC driven? Or what does that look like? Yeah. So, and we'll talk about the specific fire that I was on, but it, it just depends. The idea is that the engine company is going to, you know, get on scene, um, potentially work from tank water. You don't have to catch a water supply. Uh, it just depends on the situation. Um, so that first in engine is going to be assigned fire attack. Um, second engine is going to get water supply if it hasn't been established. And the idea is that ladder, when that ladder comes in, um, they're going to get um, assigned truck functions, whether that's primary search, uh, the truck works inside, outside type team. So you could have the outside team doing their outside functions, inside team doing primary search, uh, specifically on a residential uh, we do have towers. Our towers have water. Uh, they have 350 gallons on them. And we just talk about, it's pretty common to hear them say, it's just a big water can. It's kind of how they look at it, just a big water can. And when they get on scene first, uh, they'll stretch a line. They might put some water on the fire, leave that line in the front yard, and then resume truck functions uh, if that's the position they're in. So there are, you know, things that are expected based on how you arrive on scene. But I believe our department does a really good job of uh, it's, you know, dependent on what rig gets on scene first. An engine can easily get assigned primary search, especially with just having one ladder on that first, um, on that uh, working fire. Cool. Can you take us to uh, April 9th, 2021 and give us the rundown of uh, the day and the call and how everything went down? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I roved into a station that day. So being newer to the organization, I was in the roving pool. So my assignment got, um, it was just what they needed for the day. So I was actually assigned to a medic unit. Uh, so medic 21, and I was assigned as the, um, EMT driver for the paramedics. So most of our paramedic units have two paramedics, but some of them do have an EMT driver and a paramedic. And this is one of those units. And I just want to say one of the things going back to supporting uh, what the, de the department supporting what you want up until this point in my career, before I moved over to the South Metro, I had never worked as a firefighter without being a paramedic. I always had that paramedic responsibility. And when I got to South Metro, I made the decision to not participate as a paramedic and just focus on being a firefighter EMT. So that's what put me in that position that day. Um, brand new crew. I knew some of the, the crew members, but had never worked with them. So uh, brand new crew. Uh, that station has a engine, engine 21, has medic 21 and medic 211. So they have two medic units and an engine. Uh, the crew that day, uh, we had six, uh, actually eight of us. So there was four in the engine two on the two medics. So that was eight. Uh, the captain early on, we went through our rig checks, uh, did all the things we needed to do. And early on, the captain came up and he said, Hey, you want to, you want to do a group workout? You want to get a workout in as a group? I was like, absolutely. He's like, Hey, you want to put something on the board for us? So right away, I knew it's going to be a great day. Here's a crew that trains together. They sweat together. Um, early on, we got that workout in. I think we ran a couple of calls during the workout, got back to the workout. And then the day just continued. <clears throat> excuse me, I just want to clear my throat. The day continued with uh, just training in the Bay. We had a newer firefighter, somebody who was newer than me. We were out there doing forcible entry type things, uh, training, uh, talking about stretching lines, talking about search. It was just a really solid day of uh, being into the job and, and talking about fire and doing some skills. So that day went um, calls, training, laughing, working out, all the good things you see in a firehouse. Uh, and uh, around 8.45 p.m., we got dispatched to reports of a possible structure fire. So the initial assignment out of 21s was engine 21 and medic 21. I was on medic 21. Uh, medic 211 was in the bay, and they heard the dispatch, and they kind of asked, they looked, they looked over at the cap and said, hey, do you want us to go with you? Because it was just reports of a structure fire. It wasn't confirmed working fire yet. And the cap said, yeah, add on. So now it was engine 21 let out, medic 21 behind them, and uh, medic 211 following medic 21. Oh, it was a short, short response. We were no more than a half mile from, from the fire. And it was a townhome community. So you, you usually get that time to prepare, you know, mentally. And usually on the way to a fire, I'm riding backwards. I'm not driving. So different position for me. There's certain things I do with my gear on the way to a fire, if I'm riding backwards, that's about when I'm going to take my mic out of my jacket, clip my mic on my coat, make sure my seatbelt isn't capturing my air pack, all those little things that you don't want to get caught when you're coming out of the rig. You do that one or two times in your career. And that's something that's kind of like that sweep, like you're sweeping for a bunk bed kind of deal, just making sure all your wires are not uh, underneath your pack and all that stuff. So those are things I normally do riding backwards, driving to the fire a little bit different, right? I don't have my air pack on. I am bunked up to the point where I could drive, but I still got to get my air pack, the irons, my helmet when we get on scene. As we pull up, you could see fire uh, blowing out the alpha side window, front window, large window. Um, it's auto exposing 
up the alpha side. And at this point, it kind of looks like it's already in the attic, the way the flames are meeting the soffit. Uh, engine 21 pulls past the fire to the alpha delta corner is basically where they put their tailboard. Um, I position medic 21 between um, the alpha side and just uh, probably a good 50 to 75 yards away from the alpha side, but on the alpha side so that we could get to work quickly, but it also leave plenty of room uh, for access for the incoming units. As I get off the rig, get to my compartment, get my air pack on, grabbing the irons, as my shoulder straps are just dropping onto my, onto my shoulders, I see the firefighter paramedic from engine 21 is just hustling. He's running with that inch and three quarter. And when you see that, you know what it looks like. You're just like, it's a, I was, I just wanted to scream out. Yeah, man. You know, like good fire ground pace. He's hustling, stretching the line. The engineer's catching his own water supply. Uh, by the time I run up with my partner, the paramedic, uh, we got our tools. He's already putting water on the fire. Um, they make a decision to do a transitional because they're going to pass the fire to get to the front door anyway. So he's putting water on the fire. I make my way up to the captain who took command. And I said, hey, Cap, do you want us to do a primary search? And he said, yes. So we get assigned primary search. Uh, we go to check the front door. Front door is unlocked. And this is where I really, at this point, I had been looking through um, the firefighter rescue survey numbers and looking at the data. And it was pretty cool to be in a position where I was about to make decisions based on that information. Like I was going to make decisions on what direction I searched, how I searched uh, based on that firefighter rescue survey, which uh, was a cool experience. That was the first time I ever got to do that outside of a training environment. So based on the time of day, it was 8.45 PM. It was two stories. Uh, I believe the bedrooms were upstairs. Uh, I made a decision to go to the left because it looked like from the outside, they had a big window on the left side too, to the left of the front door that looked like a family room, dining room type area. The fire was blown out of the kitchen. We didn't know that it was the kitchen at that point, but I, the engine company was coming in with the hose line and they were going to cover that whole path to the right of the front door was where that fire was blown out of the window. So I felt like that would get covered to the right. I would go to the left with my partner and we would cover that area. I wasn't super concerned about upstairs because of the time of day. Doesn't mean they couldn't have been up there, but that was kind of what was going through my mind in that moment. Get inside. We do our uh, size up live fire layout. Initially, I could see that there is some content. We have smoke probably banked down to about four feet off the floor. So we're thinking the fire is on that floor. Plus, we just saw fire blowing out that window, but we're not thinking basement at this point and that we have any fire underneath us. As I go and do my sweep on the inside, um, very heavy contents, uh, but got me to the point where I, I called it hoarder conditions. Uh, Cap was outside, just right outside the front door. He was a working boss the whole time in and out of the house, um, making his assignments and also you know keeping an eye on us and making sure that we were in a good position, but he was in and out. As soon as I did that sweep, I popped my head out and I said, hey Cap, I think we have hoarder conditions because that's what it felt like. Um, as I moved to the left to try and do a search to the left, uh, I had to stay in that tripod position to be able to see visibility wise. But the problem was, is I couldn't move in that position because of how much content was to the left of the house. So that brought me back up into more of a standing position, which decreased my, my visibility. 
So I searched that left side, kind of moving through a bunch of debris, uh, cleared that left side, and then moved further down to what was like a dining room, cleared that area, made my way back towards the center hallway where the door would be in line with that center hallway. And I found stairs that were going up, up. I found stairs going up. So those stairs were pretty clear. I could see up them, but I couldn't see the landing. So I made my way at least up to that landing and came back down. As I came back down, engine company was coming through with the hose line. Just to the right of those stairs, when I came back down, there were stairs going down. So we didn't know that this was a basement, that it had a basement, a townhome with a basement. The captain was between the front door and those basement stairs. I said, hey, Cap, we have a basement. Just wanted to give him a heads up. Thought maybe he could let the incoming units know that we had a basement. The reason I knew there was a basement was the door was already open to that basement. As the engine company's coming through, they have to close that basement door to make their way past to get into the kitchen to put out whatever remaining fire was left. They knocked down the majority of the fire um, initially from the outside. The whole time we had no real heat. We did have uh, at times zero visibility, but there was no, no real heat that I was concerned about. As the engine company came by and opened that door or actually closed that door to the basement, we had a victim prone right behind that door. He was halfway in a bathroom and halfway out. So I met the engine nozzleman. He was right there with me. Uh, he said, hey, we got a victim. I'm right there with him. So there's two of us that realized we have a victim. I go to reach in my and grab my radio to make that communication to call that urgent traffic that we have a victim. And like I talked about on the way is when I usually pull that mic out and get myself set up. And I didn't do that. So my mic was buried in my coat. And with my fire gloves on and everything buttoned up, I just made a decision that we were going to grab them and go and that urgent traffic could get transmitted at a later time. So we had to get them to a uh, supine position, which was difficult because he was, he was about 300 pounds. Only thing he was wearing was underwear. His skin was intact. Uh, we could see him on the floor with that visibility being about good, vis decent visibility, about four feet off the floor. Uh, so we rolled him on his side and I looked at the, um, the firefighter medic off engine 21. I'm like, let's just do a dirty drag. Let's just grab his arms and pull him out. That was my plan A in training. Uh, that was what I felt like I would do in a real fire scenario. Again, this is the first time um, I had ever pulled somebody out of a fire, or even had an opportunity. And we talked earlier, Grant, you know, most of my career uh, prior to being at South Metro was I spent a lot of time on a truck. And uh, I never had the opportunity, but it played in my mind several times throughout my career. We all do that. We say, hey, what if this happens? What am I going to do? We train on it. And we made the decision to do a dirty drag. Well, with this guy being 300 pounds, finally got him supine. His head was facing the door when we got to him, so we didn't have to spin him around. We each grabbed an arm, and we were just going to pull him out. Um, one guy's pulling an arm. The next guy's pulling an arm. We're not coordinated pulling the arms. We're not going one, two, three, pull. One guy's pulling. The other guy's pulling. It's not a good coordinated movement. The other thing we have, which we, we rarely have in training, is we have carpet. So that carpet's creating some additional friction, some additional resistance. So we're moving him, but it's nowhere near at the pace uh, we should have been. So we realized that pretty quickly. The problem was, is that was our plan A. 
And I look at it like fire, like in fire, when we're fighting fire, are we winning or are we losing? And we quickly make that decision. If we're losing, we either bring a bigger line in or we just, you know, think about it a different tactic. When we're pulling a victim out, I, I wasn't thinking that way, but we were losing. I felt like we were losing. And I really should have went to something like webbing, which I don't want to do if I don't have to. But we've trained on it several times. It would have worked great. It would have gave us something to grab them by. We had a more coordinated pull uh, between not getting the, the drag we wanted and in our minds feeling like we need to go to plan B. The captain met up with us and now there was three of us. So now we're moving a little bit better. He gets the victim's leg. We got the arms and we're moving a little bit better. The captain who wasn't part of this, didn't have the tunnel vision initially had the wherewithal to kind of pop back outside and say, Hey, we need one more firefighter. And to kind of give you a, um, a distance from where we found him was probably about 20 feet from the front door. So not a distance, but it felt like a mile when we weren't getting good progress on those poles initially. So the captain having the sense to say, Hey, I need a fourth firefighter in here, pops his head out the door. There's a firefighter dressed out, ready to go, pulls him in. And then we get the victim outside. Between the captain joining us, he called the urgent. We, he was able to see we had a victim. He called for EMS on the alpha side. He had everything set up for us. What was really cool is we had a um, department, the department I worked for prior, Aurora Fire, is a mutual aid department for that area of our district. So they got dispatched as well, Engine 11 from Aurora Fire, and they got assigned water supply. But by the time they got there, our engineer had gotten a water supply and he even stretched a two and a half inch line because he was going to fight fire from the outside and put water from the outside while that interior line went inside. He was bummed out because by the time he stretched his two and a half, charged it and was getting ready to put fire water on the fire, the uh, firefighter from engine 21 had already put out most of the fire. So engine 11's assignment was water supply. But what happened was by the time they got there, it was already done. So they were at the front door. So that was one of the firefighters. That was the fourth firefighter that joined us to pull out the victim. What was nice is they had paramedics on their rig, engine 11, and they were hands-on CPR. As soon as we pulled that victim out, compressions were being done right away. Um, the medic unit that I drove in, medic 21, was repositioned. I believe it was part of engine 11's crew from Aurora fire and uh, one of the BCs that was on scene, they repositioned the, the medic unit. So it was uh, ready to go. Once we got the victim out, CPR was done probably for about two minutes before we got them onto a backboard and we loaded them into the back of the medic unit and the back of the medic unit was the firefighter who fought fire from the outside, went inside, was part of the rescue, pulling the guy out, found the victim pulled the guy out. And now he's the paramedic in the back of the medic unit with the other paramedic for medic 21, which I rode in on and a firefighter from a rough fire. All three of them were in the back. Our two firefighters still had their gear on and their air packs on and they're working this guy. I'm now on the front driving emergent, the victim that we pulled out. And what's crazy is we have these cameras on our medic units. You've seen them, you guys transport where you could see the screen and you could see the, the, the back of the uh, compartment where the patient compartment where they're transporting. So as I'm driving emergent to the hospital, I'm looking in that 
I'm looking at that monitor, the camera, and I see one of our fire medics is clearing his past device as he's innovating this patient. And I'm just like, and you just know, like, first of all, it's not lost on me 18 years in that I'll probably never going to pull a, a victim out and then drive them to the hospital. Right. That's just probably never going to happen again. And then I look at the monitor and this is how incredible these guys are. I mean, everybody on that scene, everybody who showed up is into the job. They train consistently. They move at a pace that you'd want to see at your own home. And I'm looking at this monitor. I'm like, this guy's innovating and clearing his past device at the same time. So they got pulses back on the victim in route to the hospital. Um, we dropped them off at the hospital. He had pulses. And uh, we found out later on, later in that evening, he did um, actually pass away. But I believe from the time we got on scene to the time the victim was being transported, so air brakes to the time the uh, victim was being transported was just about six minutes. So that goes right into that firefighter rescue survey data where we're increasing. I mean, I think I read the last time I read it, it was about a 90% survival rate. If you could stay under 60, uh, if you could stay under six minutes. So um, we give them a good shot. Uh, there are things I would have done better for sure. Uh, plenty of lessons I learned on that fire that I would have uh, things I would have done a little bit better specifically uh, taking too long to transition to a different type of removal technique. Uh, but that's, you know, part of uh, why we do this is just trying to get better. So that's kind of the snapshot of it. Um, I like to, to think about calls this way. I know a lot of the times uh, in the fire service, we'll, we will hear about how a crew performed on a call. And oftentimes we'll say, you know, why did they do that? You know, why did they do that? And I think the better question is, is, you know, what were they thinking in that moment of time that the decision made sense? And the only way we really get a chance to know what that is, is if we talk to those firefighters. And I also realize we all have a different experience on a call, even though we're all on the same call, it's just a different experience. So I'm really just sharing my perspective. Um, the firefighter on engine 21, unbelievable how much work he did in such a short period of time. That captain, command presence was dialed in. And on top of it, he was a working boss the whole time. Like never, I knew where he was the whole time. The engineer, just unbelievable pace, catching his own water supply, stretching a line. Uh, my partner off the medic unit, right there with me doing the search. The firefighter that was off engine 21 that didn't have the hose line, supporting us um, inside as well, brand new firefighter. So that those first in crews um, just moved at a pace that was uh, impressive. And then on top of it, we had, I had never worked with them before. So it was just a great, great experience to see yourself just get fit right into the cog of a crew that is into the job. And then we also had medic 211, who I forgot to mention. As uh, soon as they got on scene, um, the captain assigned them to do a primary search of that second floor. So that second floor got covered pretty quickly after we made that decision to go left. A couple of questions I have. Did uh, you guys have reports of victims at all? No, we had no reports of victims. Nothing that I heard coming in and nothing that I heard over the radio. So if there was anything that got mentioned later on, there, was, there were no reports of victims. Um, the one thing that I missed that the firefighter who was brand new, um, 
talked about after we got back to the station. He says, when I got in there and I got low, when I looked to the right, I saw a walker about seven feet from the door. So like in his mind, which I thought was pretty, pretty awesome for him was he was able to recognize that there could be somebody who's not able to ambulate inside this, inside this uh, structure as well. Yeah, for sure. Do you guys, EMS wise, do you guys use cyano kits or anything for the smoke? We do. And that was grabbed um, prior to our transport. So what was interesting was it wasn't, we got to the hospital within, I think, three minutes of transport. The hospital wasn't that far. So between intubation, compressions, uh, IOs, first line medications for the um, cardiac arrest, we had the cyano kit, but it didn't get uh, given until we got to the hospital. But the hospital did use our kit for that for that victim. Nice. Um, you said you had a bunch of lessons learned. Uh, what, what? Give us some of like your major takeaways from this. I know you're into the job, you're into the fitness, um, which makes things a little little easier since you're already kind of pretty pretty well dialed in. But what did this highlight that you need to work on more or do differently in training? Yeah, the first thing will be um, I called it a hoarding hoarder conditions. And I really, in my mind, never had the definition of, I never learned what that is. And that truly wasn't hoarder conditions. That was heavy content. And the problem with calling it hoarder conditions, and thankfully our captain didn't do this, but they could get on the air and say, Hey, we have hoarder conditions. And it's just like that same thing where everyone does, everybody's out when people are coming in and they start hearing hoarder conditions, or they start hearing uh, all victims are out. It changes. It could potentially change their mindset and their tactics. And thankfully that didn't get aired. And what we really had was heavy contents. And I looked it up that night when we got back to the firehouse after we cleaned up and deconned and everything. Before I went to bed, I looked up hoarder conditions. And hoarder conditions is more like maze-like high stacked materials that cause you to kind of follow a maze. And for us, that's not what we had. We had heavy heavy content. So in the, in the future, I'll call it, you know, we got heavy content because that's, that's really what it was. Uh, the other thing is it's our training. I know me uh, personally, um, most of the victim, uh, the mannequins that I drag are 165 to 200 pounds. And I know you just got back from FTTN and they do a great job of using some of those larger dummies, those mannequins, those 300 pound mannequins. And I think we just have to do a better job of the people we're finding are typically deconditioned, unhealthy people that can't get themselves out of the fire or they have some sort of disability that they can't ambulate or whatever it is. Um, we're, we're coming across larger victims. So for me to drag a 165-pound mannequin on a polished bay floor and think I'm prepared doing a dirty drag with grabbing their arms and going is not reality. And I realized that when we had two firefighters trying to do that on a 300-pound victim on carpet. So uh, training with carpet, training with real surfaces that we're actually dragging the victims on and using victims that are the actual weight of what we're going to run into. And even if we do use 300 pound victims and we come across a 200 pound victim, then we're in even a better spot. I mean, I think historically search in general, like primary search for civilians, isn't something we've done a really good job with in the fire service. I could tell you, I've had dozens of uh, firefighter writ Rick type of trainings in my career, which is great. I think it's super important and we need to continue to do that. But I think we could uh, focus on that civilian rescue a little bit more uh, department-wide. I know we do a great job of it at, at conferences, but I think fire departments in general 
I think we do a better job uh, when we finally get to those calls uh, using those uh, different types of search techniques, whether it's a split, uh, using that targeted search, all those things that you guys consistently share in our training uh, the fire service on. I think if departments uh, moved in that direction, we'd be better off. I think fire ground, when we talk about uh, fire ground pace, I think it made a difference in this in this call because everybody separated from the rig pretty quickly. Um, and I think that is one of those things we have complete control over. Uh, you see crews that could get in position in 30 seconds and you can see, you see crews that get in position in two minutes. Um, that's a minute and a half difference. And we talk about fire growth. When we talk about that ideal H environment and that victim being exposed to that smoke, uh, a minute and a half is a long time. So I love how Ben Schultz does a great job of talking about victim removal and how he uses the example of somebody in the pool and they're drowning in the middle of a pool. And we just need to get them out of the pool, whether that's getting them out by the steps or getting them out on the side that's closest to where we find them. Um, they just need to get out of the pool. And I think part of getting them out of the pool is how quickly do we separate from the rig? So uh, separation from the rig is something I still work on. I shouldn't have to think too much when I get off the rig where I'm where I'm grabbing my tools from and and what my assignment's going to be. Um, other than that, fitness, man, you knew I was going to throw that in here. <laughs> fitness is important. Uh, search, primary search. Uh, we just had training two shifts ago. Uh, we were out at the drill ground for three hours. It was our medic unit and our engine, um, and we were pulling hose lines and we were you know, doing the real deal, forcing doors, um, in full gear on air. And we were, you know, three hours out on the drill ground and we all look at each other. We're all working out consistently and we're all taking the job seriously. And we are smoked. We are absolutely smoked. Um, the physical demand that our gear alone puts on us, I would argue on a day-to-day -day basis, basis, that's our most challenging environment. The heat trapping, the range of motion restriction, um, the air pack on your back, tools in your hand. So uh, I think fitness is a big part of uh, us being able to do an effective and an efficient primary search. So, and then even like, you know, you see guys like um, uh, Brian Olson does a great job, right? He's always working out in gear. He gets down in the tripod position. He's doing movements that are just mimicking what we're going to do on a search. So I think the more we do that in our training, in our fitness, um, the better position we're going to be in to, uh, you know, get those victims out quicker. Those would be my big takeaways. Uh, I can't think of anything else right off the top of my head. Yeah, and I'd like to echo what you said about training and gear. I know I've gotten in discussions with several people, and some people are like, fireground is fireground, fitness is fitness. And uh, I love your subscription, too. Uh, I, I think it's blended. I know uh, before I went to FDTN the first time, I spent months in gear on air so that those I could free my mind for all the unknowns. And if you're comfortable working in the gear, you're comfortable that every time you hear that pass alarm start, you just automatically know what you're going to do. Uh, you know how your body can move in different situations. You can tripod on both legs. It just frees yourself up to be able to uh, deal with the unknown on the fire ground. So I appreciate that you share that uh, and subscribe to that uh, mentality of training. Yeah. It's so it's one of those things like I don't want to have to think about, how uncomfortable I am in my gear while I'm trying to figure out fire conditions, victim location, all that other stuff. If me, if me being in my gear is a challenge from the get-go before I even started working, uh, that's just not fair to the people we serve. And it's too easy for us just to put our gear on. I'm not saying every single workout, if I could get in gear once or twice a week, 
and do a workout. And it may not even be a workout. It might be taking the ladder off the engine and throwing the ladder several times, uh, you know, doing skills. Cause as far as our heart's concerned, if I'm forcing doors, dragging victims, tripoding through the bay, throwing ladders and my heart's 150 beats per minute. As far as my heart's concerned, I'm on an air bike, I'm rowing, I'm running, um, I'm push pressing. It doesn't know I'm getting that cardiovascular fitness and I'm, I'm improving my skills. So even for those that don't feel like it's okay to work out in gear with kettlebells and, and, and dumbbells and all that other stuff, that's fine. Just put your gear on and throw ladders, put your gear on and four stores, put your gear on and tripod through the, through the bay, practicing your technique, switching. I know I have to, I can't stay on the same knee all the time. I have to switch it up if it's a longer, a longer search. So just work on those things. And as far as your heart's concerned, you're, you're getting a great workout in. So yeah, man, I, I, I love, I love that the fire service has really moved in that direction. It's not uncommon to see uh, people in the, in the Bay uh, doing a workout in gear. So, and obviously we want to talk about using clean gear. Anytime we talk about putting gear on, it's clean gear. We're not talking about gear that's covered in carcinogens. We're talking about clean gear. Yeah, for sure. Well, John, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on, share your story, talk a little bit about the fitness stuff. And and uh, this is probably one of my favorite podcasts uh, and you're like one of my favorite fire people. Um, so um, if people want to get a hold of you for anything, I know you're doing so much stuff. What's the easiest way to do that? Yeah, man. First of all, I want to say thank you. I think the coolest part about the Grabs podcast is I listen to it on the way into work. And so much of our job is like being in the right mindset. And we all have difficulties at home. We leave our homes and things aren't always tightened up the way we want them to be. We might be arguing with our wives. We might have our our children not doing the things we want them to do. Like That's life. We all have difficult seasons of life. But now I'm driving to the firehouse and I have to get my mind right. Like I'm about to work a 48-hour shift. We worked at 4896 here. And I want my mind to be right. It doesn't mean I don't care about those things that are going on at home, but I need to compartmentalize that and go to work and be able to do my job. And one of my favorite things is to turn on the Grabs podcast and just listen to firefighters all over the country who are making grabs. And the little, I usually pull one or two things away that I'm going to think about or try to apply that day at work. And then just to kind of talk about real quick, the firefighter rescue survey when those numbers came out and we realized we're making 10 grabs a day in the fire service, 10, there's 10 rescues being made a day on average. When you're putting your gear on the rig now, like keep that number in your head. Like, think about that. Think about that. So um, I want to say thank you to you, man. And just as much as uh, you enjoy, you know, talking to me and, and hearing what's going on on my end, um, I just really appreciate you. I appreciate your your uh, authenticity, especially when it comes to the faith and our conversations that we have. So uh, like we talk about, man, iron sharpens iron and this whole thing is about making all of us better, knowing that none of us are perfect and we're all on that path of trying to become the best version of ourselves. But along the way, it's nice to have guys like you in our lives that um, are authentic or honest about where they're at in their walk in life and just add value to my life. So I appreciate you, man. Now I'll finally answer your question. So <laughs> Uh, the best place is just fittofightfire.com. And we're, I'm on social media, Facebook. You have to find it under Fit to Fight Fire, Instagram. Don't do much with Twitter. Uh, podcast is coming back. 
um, podcast is coming back, the Fit the Fight Fire podcast. And I'll just share this. It's going to be a faith-based podcast. It's going to be a podcast where we share the testimonies of firefighters all over the country where their faith has made an impact in their career and their lives. And to share that with our brothers and sisters, I think is really important. So um, one last thing, I just want to say thank you to my organization, South Metro Fire Rescue, um, is in the pursuit of excellence on a daily basis. The people that work work at South Metro Fire Rescue are some of the best I've ever met in my life. Um, everybody who was on that call that day uh, is what made that call a success. Unfortunately, the victim didn't make it, but I do believe in my heart we gave him the best chance possible. And I'm just proud to say that I'm a South Metro Fire Rescue firefighter. Awesome. Well, thanks, John. Um, if anybody out there, so you brought up a good point, 10 rescues a day. And I struggle sometimes to get people to reach out to me to uh, share their story. And no, I don't have like a hundred submissions and I go through and only pick the good ones. If you want to call, uh, you get a hold of me on, on Facebook or Instagram. I'm still like a kind of an Instagram idiot, but, uh, or just uh, send me a text 239-898-0843. Um, you know, however, just get a hold of me and we, we'll make it happen. Cause uh, I, I really like to record more of these and get about two out a month. Um, because in the end, it's just about sharing the stories and, and really bringing that firefighter rescue survey to life. Uh, that's really our mission. So if you're not, if you're willing to share, get a hold of me, Nick Ladine or Justin McWilliams. If you don't want to share, uh, the least you can do is just get on firefighter rescue survey, put that information in there. Uh, that information's for us, by us. And it's great to teach from, because if we're not teaching from that, we're just making stuff up and that's not good enough for the civilians out there that count on us. But uh, thanks for listening. And uh, until next time.